You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. In your Bibles today, we're next reading from John 20, verses 11 through to 18. Uh, Please join. Uh, Mary stood crying outside the tomb. While she was still crying, she bent down and looked into the tomb and saw two angels there dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? They asked her. She answered, They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who is it that you are looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said to him, If you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will go around and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and said in Hebrew, Rabbanoni, this means teacher. Do not hold on to me, Jesus told her, because I have not yet gone back up to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell him that I am returning to him, who is my father and their father, my God and their God. So Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and related to them what he had told her. Christ is risen. You've been well trained. Thanks, Alex, for preparing them for that. Uh, My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. It's wonderful to be here together on this Easter Sunday. Uh, If you'd find it helpful, there's an outline on the welcome card uh, on the website. Uh, If you've got a Bible, it'd be handy to have that open at John chapter 20 or a Bible app on your phone. You'll find that useful. Uh, As we come to think about... Uh, these resurrection appearances of Jesus, let's pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect on this Easter Sunday about the wonders of your Son who has returned to life and now lives. Please be with us to help us to understand this better and what it means for us. Amen. Well, on this Easter Sunday, we're going to learn about the greater life that Jesus received from his heavenly Father and the greater life that is available to any who trust in him. But before we jump into that, I think we need to address the odd gender stereotypes that John seems to be perpetuating in our passage. Looking at John chapter 20, verse 1 through to 18. In verse 2, the Apostle John, he makes an appearance. Out of modesty, he describes himself as the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, it's modest because he doesn't name himself, but he still does say that he's Jesus' favourite. Fair enough. But what I'm thinking about is, next, after he introduces himself, Peter and John, they hear about the empty tomb and they run off to investigate. And then we get this in verse 4. Both were running... But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's a bit of a flex from John, isn't it? Meanwhile, in the second part of the passage, we have Mary crying outside of the empty tomb. It's a bit of a classic scene, isn't it? A a woman who is weeping over the disappearance of her Lord's body and the blokes are having a running race. Really, John? What's with these gender stereotypes? Well, I don't actually think it was his intention to show stereotypes. 
but it's gotten our attention, hasn't it? And he doesn't record these details because he's wanting to comment on the differences between men and women. He's actually recording these details because they really happened. And in the end, they give us a window into the emotions of that first Easter Sunday. Peter and John, they're desperate to investigate the empty tomb. But as quick as they are to arrive, they're still kind of slow to understand what's really happened. In fact, even though John, he wins the race, he doesn't enter the tomb until after Peter. They are witnesses of the empty tomb, but that's all they get at this stage. Meanwhile, Mary is persistent in her resolve to figure this situation out. Yes, she's weeping, but this doesn't stop her from seeking the body of the Lord. And it's perhaps this determination that means she's the first human witness of the risen Jesus. The two men, they've already run off back home, so she gets to behold the resurrected Lord. So these three disciples, these three followers of Jesus are witnesses for us and examples to us about the resurrection and its implications for us. So let's look at Peter and John first. They hear about the message of an empty tomb from Mary Magdalene. In verse 2, she reports to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. The we probably refers to the other women that accompanied her, just as the other gospel writers describe. So this sets Peter and John off on their running race and hence they become witnesses of the empty tomb and the greater resurrection. We see in verse 5 that when John arrives, he bends over to look into the tomb and he sees strips of linen lying there. So this tells us that this is not a great big cave or anything. This is a, a small doorway. We know that Jesus was crucified just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And so it's possible that it took place in an old quarry where the tombs have been carved out of the limestone rock face. These tombs around Jerusalem tended to have you know, one or two rooms and there'd be ledges or shelves where they could lay their bodies of their dead upon them. This actually fits with chapter 19, verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So the bodies of deceased Jews would typically be laid in a tomb and left for up to 12 months. After that time, I know this is a bit gross, but the, the body, the flesh would have decayed and so the family would come and gather up the bones and put the bones in an ossuary or a bone box where they would be kept forever. And so it makes sense that bodies would just be wrapped in linen and laid to rest there. And it makes sense also that people would use perfumes and spices under these strips of linen, linen to kind of deal with the smell of decay. So when John arrives at Jesus' tomb and looks in, he would have expected to see either a linen-wrapped body or nothing at all. And so what he sees is totally unexpected, just the strips of linen on their own. What's happened here? 
Well, Peter gets a bit more information because he boldly enters into the tomb. Have a look at verses 6 and 7 if you've got your Bibles open. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So notice, much is made of this cloth. Picture like a, a large piece of material that was placed over the face of a dead person, maybe even wrapped around their head. What Peter sees is that the linen for the body of Jesus and the cloth for the face of Jesus are both there still almost as if they've been undisturbed. So, what's happened? Mary is worried that someone has taken the body of Jesus, maybe the Romans or the Jewish leaders. But if they wanted to take the body, why would they unwrap it first? Perhaps it was grave robbers. That was a thing in those days. But again, why would robbers go to the effort of unwrapping the body? And also in those days, the linen would have actually been considered valuable and they would have taken that too. They wouldn't leave it behind. So what's happened? Well, it seems by the description that Jesus' body has been raised up to new life and the linen has been left behind. Perhaps he dematerialised or his body phased through the cloth. We're not actually told how that happened. But here are the facts. The strips of linen are where the body was supposed to be and the folded face cloth is where the head was supposed to be. And I actually think it's unlikely that Jesus perhaps unwrapped himself and put the cloth there. I mean, he would have been wrapped up in the linen cloth. And why would he have neatly folded the strips and the face cloth in that way? It really seems to be that this is a sign that Jesus has risen from the grave. And it's not just rising back to the same life, but rising to a new type of life. This actually becomes clearer when we parallel it to Lazarus's resurrection. Do you remember Jesus had a friend called Lazarus? He had two sisters, Martha and Mary, and they were upset because Lazarus was unwell and he died and Jesus came later and they said to him, why weren't you here? You could have, risen, you could have saved our brother. But when Jesus arrives, he says, well, I am the resurrection and the life. He goes to Lazarus's tomb where his friend's body is laying and he says, Lazarus, come out. And then John writes this in chapter 11, verse 44. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. So do you notice that Lazarus has the same strips of linen as Jesus, the same cloth around his head as Jesus, but he needs help to be unwrapped, doesn't he? He's returned to his old life. He's come back from the dead. But Jesus, he passes through his grave clothes to a new life. He doesn't come back from the dead. He passes through death to a glorified existence. The resurrection of Lazarus was amazing. Countless people came to believe in Jesus 
because he raised Lazarus from the dead. But this resurrection is far greater. Lazarus' experience is a pale reflection, a mere shadow of what occurred for Jesus. It was a sign that pointed to this greater resurrection. And Peter and John are witnesses of this. They are witnesses of the empty tomb which points to the greater resurrection. So eventually, John, he plucks up the courage and he enters into the tomb as well. And he sees and he believes. So let's consider that for a moment. Let's consider how Peter and John are examples of rising belief in the risen Jesus. I'll read out verses 8 and 9 for us. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John recounts how he finally went inside the tomb and saw what Peter saw. There was the cloth lying separately folded up. He'd seen the strips of linen already, but now he's seen the head cloth. And so he believes. He has faith. And that's the point of John's gospel, isn't it? John tells us the reason he wrote this book was so that people might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And so we have this biographical verse, this autobiographical verse that tells us how John himself came to believe. What a wonderful moment. And I particularly love it because it's not that he sees the risen Jesus. It's because he sees the abandoned grave clothes and he knows that Jesus has risen. Yet he then adds a note that says that he and Peter still didn't get how this fitted with the scriptures. In other words, John has real faith that Jesus has really risen from the grave, he's alive again, but he didn't understand how this was the fulfilment of the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. He didn't get how it fitted into God's grand plan for salvation. And so he had real faith, but it needed to mature and deepen. And that's okay, isn't it? That's how faith works. That's how faith works for you and me. When I became a Christian during my first year of university, it wasn't something that just happened in a moment. You know, someone explained about Jesus and I just went, ding, oh yes, I believe I'm now a Christian. Rather, it was as I spent time with Christians, as I read the Bible for myself, I started to shift my beliefs bit by bit. I became open to the possibility that the Bible was true. I started to believe that. Believe that it had something to say about my life, that it was worth reading. I cast aside my false beliefs that Christians were ignorant or backwards people. No offence. I came to believe that well, Jesus actually taught the truth. And I came to believe that the only way to make sense of the facts is that Jesus came back to life. And eventually all of these beliefs and more came together and I found that I'd actually come to truly believe. I'd come to believe that Jesus had died on the cross, that he'd risen again to bring me salvation, to bring me into relationship with God. I had faith. Yet it didn't mean that I knew how it all fit together. 
And so over the years, my faith has matured and deepened as I've understood the scriptures better, as I've seen how everything centres on Jesus and what he has done for us. So perhaps some of you here today are not Christians. That's okay. I mean, it's wonderful to have you along for church today. I'm really pleased that you're here. But I hope that this story about John helps you to see that it's okay to take your time to figure things out, to figure out this faith stuff. It doesn't have to make sense straight away. You can have a growing belief, dare I say a a rising belief in the risen Jesus. Perhaps some of you identify as a new Christian or at least you feel like you've got a lot to learn. You might worry that you don't know as much as other people at DPC, that your faith isn't as strong and secure as others. That's okay too. I mean, look at John. He lived with Jesus for three years. Jesus told him many times, I'm going to rise from the dead. But John didn't believe it until he went to the tomb and saw that it was empty, that he saw the grave clothes. It took John a bit of time. And so don't be so hard on yourself. It will take you time too, that's okay. And for those of you who consider yourselves to have a mature or deep faith, let's say you're really certain, you're 100% confident that Jesus has died and risen for you. Well, I encourage you to keep growing in your faith in Jesus. Keep maturing, keep deepening, and help others to grow in their faith too. So, that's what fast John and bold Peter were up to on Easter morning. Let's now turn to Mary. Now, Mary, Mary Magdalene, she has that name because she's from a town called Magdala, a little village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in the accounts recorded by Matthew and Mark and John, the first time she's mentioned is at the cross with the group of women who were gathered around as Jesus was being crucified. But Luke, Luke's helpful. He tells us in chapter 8 of his book that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her and that she was one of the women who financially supported Jesus. So in other words, she was a woman of means and she'd been spiritually liberated by Jesus. And so no wonder she is weeping at the thought that someone has taken his body, someone has desecrated the tomb in his body. She owed him so much and she'd been a key partner all these years. And because of her determination, she was blessed with being the very first witness of the risen Jesus and the news of his ascension. In verse 11, we find Mary's back at the tomb. She's told the disciples what's happened Peter and John have raced to be there. Now she's followed them back. No doubt she had some perfume and spices so that she could properly prepare Jesus' body. Been a bit of a rush a couple of days earlier. And we don't know whether she crossed paths with Peter and John as they were leaving, but now she's alone. Or at least she thinks she's alone. Just like the other two disciples, she bends over to look into the tomb And rather than seeing burial clothes, what does she see? She sees two angels with dazzling white, whoops, clothes. Too many. There we go, thanks. 
They're sitting where Jesus' body had been. And you see it says one at the head and the other at the foot, which suggests to me that they're sitting either side of the linen and the folded cloth. And they say to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she repeats her statement from earlier. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. Now, I have no idea who she thought these men were and why she's not shocked or amazed to see these dazzling white clothed men sitting in the tomb. It feels quite bizarre to me, but there's no comment on that. In any case, it doesn't matter because her attention is drawn back outside of the tomb. Have a look at verse 14. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Now, this seems even more bizarre. Why doesn't she recognise Jesus? Well, hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Let's keep reading. So Mary thinks that he's the gardener, which makes sense since we saw earlier that this, uh, there was a garden near where the crucifixion took place. And so she asks if he has moved the body. And then look what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She'd figured it out. Jesus is alive. Her Lord has risen. What a joy for her. But also, what a great privilege. She's the very first human witness to see the resurrected Jesus. That is why she is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. That's why she has a special place in history. Yet she isn't just a witness that Jesus is alive. She's also given news to share. Jesus is going to ascend back into heaven to be with God the Father. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus says that it isn't, he isn't just going to rise from the dead. He's going to rise from the earth, if you like, into the heavenly realms. Jesus tells Mary, that she must not hold on to him. In Matthew 28, we read that Mary clasped his feet and worshipped him. One thing I love about this is it shows us that Jesus has physically risen from the dead in, in the same body. He's, he's not a ghost, he's not a vision. It also means he's not some sort of Jedi master. You know, some of those masters who've got that technique that when they get killed, they can transcend death by just kind of disappearing. Their clothes fall to the ground and they have this sort of spirit existence. But no, it's not the case. Jesus has a real physical body, yet one that is transformed and glorified. So this gives us hope that we too will have transformed bodies in the future. We will have a, a real tangible, concrete, physical existence, but without weakness, without pain, without those limitations that we have in our physical bodies. All of our sickness will be gone. Death will no longer hang over us as a cloud, a dark cloud. What a joy that we have this to look forward to. Anyway, he tells Mary 
to not hold on to him. That's not because Jesus is literally trying to ascend right there and Mary's like dangling and pulling him back down to earth. Rather, she has a mission to do. She can't stay there with him. She has to go to spread the news. And, and part of that is her accepting that the nature of their relationship will change now. She can't hold on to him physically because she needs to depart and tell people that he has risen, but he's also ascending. And this ascension relates to the new type of relationship for his disciples. You see that he refers to God as my father and your father, my God and your God. So there's still kind of a distinction there. Jesus doesn't say our father, our God, yet there's still a shared experience of God, isn't there? So that as Jesus can call God his father, so too can the disciples because the eternal son, who has always been the son, has made a way for people to be adopted into God's family. We can be forgiven. We can be received into God's eternal family. Another benefit of Jesus' ascension is that he'll be able to send the Holy Spirit to his followers. We, we studied that, didn't we, in John chapter 16. And this outpouring of God's Spirit into the hearts of believers is what enables us to be born again. To be born again into everlasting life, to truly know and understand God's word, to be able to pray to God wherever we are, anytime, and to be united with all other believers. Mary cannot hold on to Jesus because he must ascend. He has secured great blessings through his death and resurrection, but that can only be distributed if he first returns to his Father in heaven. And the wonderful news is that these benefits are now available to us, even today. But it requires that Jesus first calls us. In this true Easter Sunday story, Mary isn't just a witness. She's also an example to us. She's an example of being called to belief. It's time to return to that odd bit where Mary doesn't recognise who Jesus is. People have their theories about this. Maybe you could come up with some. Some people say, well, maybe Mary was so grief-stricken, you know, blinded by all of her tears. She just didn't notice who Jesus was. But I don't think Mary was that distressed. Maybe, maybe Jesus used to have a beard and had been plucked out and his face was kind of changed in some way through his experience. Maybe he looked different. But, you know, Mary did actually see Jesus on the cross. So maybe Jesus has been transformed in some way, like supernaturally. Maybe his appearance was disguised. We kind of read about that in other resurrection appearances. It's possible, but we're just not told, are we? John doesn't tell us. But here's what we can know. This is another example of John's use of misunderstanding. If you've been journeying with us throughout John's Gospel, then you'll have come across this a few times, where Jesus is speaking to someone and they don't quite get what he's saying. It's almost like they're having two separate conversations. And John uses this to help us to, to be drawn in. The classic, clear example is Nicodemus. You know, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again, 
And Nicodemus is like, well, how can a grown man get back inside the womb? Classic Nicodemus. In this case, Mary misunderstands who Jesus is. Which, as readers, that draws us in, doesn't it? We go, why is this, why is this so? What's happening? Well, there's a spiritual lesson here for us. There's a special truth about Jesus that's being taught to us. Consider again Jesus' questions to Mary in verse 15. He says, woman, why are you crying? Perhaps meaning, why are you crying for me? Because I'm not actually dead. Who is it you are looking for? Perhaps meaning, why on earth are you looking for me in the tomb? What kind of a Messiah did you think I am? Didn't I tell you that I would rise again? She doesn't get this though, does she? And it's not until he speaks her name that she realises. He's already spoken, but it's just one word that helps her to see. He says, Mary. And immediately she understands and she believes in the Lord. It's a beautiful example of being called to belief. In fact, let me read out John 10, verses 1 to 5. I've already gone past it, haven't I? There we go, up on the screen. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. After this speech, Jesus goes on to say that he is the good shepherd. For he knows his sheep and they know him. He calls them and they follow him. He lays down his life for them only to take it up again. Mary is an example of this, isn't she? And when it's coupled with Jesus' words in verse 17, we realise that he's offering her a greater life. The life of a sheep cared for by the good shepherd. When we listen to the call of Jesus, when we read of him in the Bible and put our faith in him, then we too receive this greater life. We are united to God and we can call him my father. We know that we too will one day pass through death into an everlasting life. I don't know whether we'll be able to pass through linen clothes or disguise our appearance. I don't know, but it's kind of not really the point, is it? And in fact, it's kind of exciting that we don't know exactly what our resurrected lives will be like. And Jesus gives us some clues, but not a lot. Yet what we do know for certain is that the future will be marvellous. It will be glorious and we will live forever with our Creator. It fills my heart with joy to be here today to celebrate with those who have called on the name of Jesus, who he has called by name to follow him as his sheep. What a day for us to celebrate. Christ is risen. And if you haven't received that call yet, then know that Jesus is calling you right now. He wants you to believe in him.
to find the blessings that Mary received. And all you need to do is respond to him in faith by accepting his death on the cross in your place so that you can be forgiven. You need to believe that he grants you everlasting life. Well, there we have it. The first Easter morning is about a lot more than two men having a running race and a weeping woman outside of a tomb. These three disciples show us that Jesus received a greater life and he offers a greater life to those who believe in him. Let's pray. Our risen Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have died for us, that you have risen for us and that you have ascended for us. Thank you for calling us by name to trust in you. And I pray for those who haven't yet heard and received that call that they would do so today, knowing that you are the good shepherd who has already laid down his life for them. We thank you that you are risen and may we continue to celebrate that on this Easter Sunday. Amen.